Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Last month, a unfortunate four-year-old in Detroit was uh, killed. The owner of the pit bull who allegedly uh, mauled this boy is now in jail. He's charged with second-degree murder, second-degree murder. And the city, uh, predictably, is uh, now considering a ban on pit bulls. So here we go again, another reaction of a city wondering what to do uh, following a tragic accident. What do you do? Bob Ferber, welcome to Animals Today. Thank you, Peter. Okay, here we go again, and the city council is considering some kind of uh, law to to hopefully prevent another tragedy. What's our experience with laws like this? Well, Peter, it goes back to uh, probably the two biggest cities that started this was Miami and uh, Denver. Colorado and Denver, Colorado passed a pit bull ban based on following a, a number of, of tragedies involving pit bulls or dogs that appeared like pit bulls, and they instituted a ban. Uh, there was a lot of discussion around the country about whether this was legal or not. The state of Colorado, interestingly, did not want a pit bull ban in their state, and they didn't want the city of Denver to do it, so they sued. And uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, Colorado lost the lawsuit. They, they argued that a pit bull ban is very vague, that nobody knows what a pit bull is. They also argued that the state should have the right to make that decision, not cities. But the courts disagreed and allowed the pit bull ban, which ended up in some horrific stories in Denver of animal control officers and police cars in teams going door to door. Uh, giving people 24 hours notice or pulling dogs out in front of family members and, you know, and banning these dogs from the city. And in Miami, there was a, the same thing happened. And in fact, there was a well-known football player who was transferred to, I think, the Dolphins, and he didn't want to go and he was going to refuse to be transferred because he had pit bulls. And they actually found a home for him outside of Miami so that he could still keep his pit bulls. And since then, we've seen local cities around the country who have toyed with this idea of, well, this this dog, a pit bull, did something bad two or three times in the last several months. We've had several attacks. We're going to ban all pit bulls. And it's continuing to go on uh, up until, like, as you read, you know, about a month ago with this tragedy with this child. Yeah. Now, we're talking about a breed-specific legislation. That's the term people throw around the abbreviation BSL. And besides the tragedy of or the heart-wrenching stories of literally confiscating a dog from from its uh, formerly legal owner, uh, laws like this are fraught with uh, trouble enforcing and implementing, right? Yes, yes. It's a, and, you know, the, uh, one of the most basic tenets of American law is that when a law is passed, the public, the community needs to know when are they violating the law and when are they not. So on real practical terms, forgetting about the social morality issue, uh, 
How does the community know whether they have a pit bull that's illegal? We all know anybody who's familiar with the animal and dog world is that uh, pit bulls have been, uh, you know, that term has been used for over a dozen types of breeds of dogs from different forms of Staffordshires, Mastiffs. Uh, there are, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, I've seen boxers in the street and somebody says, oh, that's a pit bull. And there's, you can tell that without being an expert that there's no pit bull in it. But it looks maybe like those big, scary pit bull dogs. So the, the, the difficulty, and I think Colorado really was correct when they sued Denver in saying that, how do people know? And as a prosecutor, if I brought somebody in and said, you have an illegal pit bull, they're going to say, rightfully so, how do, you, how do I know that it's a pit bull? How do you know it's a pit bull? And the answer would be, I can't really prove it unless, you know, unless we do detailed DNA testing. And even DNA testing, anybody who's had uh, their dog DNA tested in the last couple of years when it's very popular, virtually everybody is shocked when the DNA test comes back. They thought they had a purebred Irish setter, and it comes back that they've got part Chihuahua, they've got part Cocker Spaniel, they've got a part German Shepherd. That's right. So even DNA testing doesn't help to keep a, to make a law that is constitutional and lets people know exactly what a pit bull is. Um, so you have, in the end, arbitrary enforcement mm -hmm. where you're leaving it up to animal control officers and cops, and in, and even like insurance companies to decide who is what is a pit bull and that's simply not what our american justice system is about and yet uh cities and municipalities they feel they need to do something what can they do to make their communities uh, safer when they when something like this happens what what should the reaction well, it, be it, it raises a whole issue of i mean there is a social issue here of you know i without going into detail about this but you know we call it breed specific legislation we have this you know we've had this for you know hundreds of years in this country and around the world where we've had sort of ethnic specific legislation we had um you know racial specific legislation that oh if you're black then you can't do this and the issues always came up of what is you know how much african american to be under you know, where you can't use a certain water fountain. Uh, so, the, and, and we've shown that these things not only are wrong morally and legally, they don't work. Um, I think the solution has always been and continues to be that whether it's uh, a human or an animal, they should be judged by their behavior, mm -hmm. not individual behavior, not by the class that they're in. Yeah. Just as I think anybody in this country of any background, whatever, would not want to be judged by what a label is. They want to be judged by, did I do something? And in fact, there's a, a specific principle in American law that you can't have what's called a status crime. A status crime is where you're a criminal just because of who you are. And yet, breed-specific legislation is a status crime. Mm. It creates a, an animal is a, uh, just because of what it is. Yes. It's a crime. So the, the solution is education, um, being very, very aggressive with off-leash, uh, with irresponsible owners. The overwhelming majority of dog attacks in Los Angeles area, in Southern California, that involved large breed dogs, 
were with owners that had chronic histories of letting their dogs off leash. That is, to me, the solution. Enforce the laws we have. Teach people that they about education, about approaching animals, caring for animals, behavior. But most importantly, keep. It sounds so silly, but it's so simple. Keep your dog off on a leash, yeah. whether it's a small or a big dog. Don't have children approaching any animal unless you know that the animal, how it is with children, and under supervision. And it doesn't matter whether it's the friendliest dog or the nippiest little chihuahua you've ever met. The principles are the same. Bob, you mentioned earlier the Constitution. Is there really a constitutional issue at stake? Can uh, briefly describe that? Absolutely. It's called the concept is about due process. And uh, every lawyer has lear- law student learns that in the first or second year of law school. Due process is a principle that says that the, the, the government can't do something unless it's basically fair. And fairness in passing a law is that if we pass a law that says you can't go through a traffic sign, a, tra- a stoplight, you need to know, well, what does a stop sign look like? That's why every stop sign in the country looks the same. So people cannot say, well, I went into Minneapolis and the stop sign was blue. I don't know that that was a stop sign. I thought they were red. So if there's a uniformity of letting the public know, you see a red hexagonal sign that says stop, that means stop. Well, you can't know that when you're judging behavior of individuals or animals based on what they are, a label. You need to base it on behavior. Uh, So somebody is put on notice, you got to keep your dog on leash. Not, you can't have a pit bull, because anybody could say, and they should say, what is a pit bull? What is, how do I know? How much pit bull? What if my dog is 80% chihuahua, but there's a little pit bull? And in fact, you know, Peter, I, I had a dachshund years ago that was part pit bull, but he was mostly dachshund. Uh, you know, does that mean that I couldn't have him? He was 25-pound dog, you know, and but I don't know. And yeah. that's the problem. Okay. You have to be able to know. And that's, so that's why I believe these laws are really unconstitutional. But... You know, the, the, the decision by a judge about what is constitutional can change based on social events. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago in this country where separate but equal was okay, or where, uh, you know, just plain old discrimination was constitutional. Uh, so, it, you know, and sadly, in some ways, judges, Supreme Courts, will bend to the pressure of, you know, our, of uh, public opinion. And right now, it seems that the courts are saying, sadly, that, okay, well, there's so many pit bulls that are so-called hurting people, so we're going to, okay, we're going to say it's okay to ban them, even though we don't even know what they are and how to define it. Right. And insurance companies are probably the worst offenders because they are denying people homeowners insurance for what they call dangerous breeds, and they've lumped into that dogs like German Shepherds and other breeds that there isn't even a public outcry about these dogs. But the insurance companies are using this as an opportunity to discriminate not just against pit bulls, but other types of family dogs. And Bob, we'll look forward to getting into uh, insurance companies and apartment buildings in a future segment, okay? 
that would be wonderful. Okay, be Bob. Wonderful. I hope someday that uh, we can finally get back to, to, to treating people and animals based on their behavior and not by their status. Bob Ferber, thanks for your insights, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you soon. Very good. Take care, Peter. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. Do you owe the IRS money? Do you have years of unfiled returns? Has the IRS garnished your wages or put a lien against your house? The IRS has the power to make you pay back what they claim you owe and will stop at nothing to collect. If you are losing sleep over your IRS tax problem, there is a solution. Call Signature Tax now. Speak with our professionals and feel the weight of your tax burden lifted from your shoulders. Call 800-859-9446 for your free and confidential analysis on ending your tax nightmare. We can help get your life back on track and give you the fresh start you deserve. Our A-plus BBB-rated tax resolution team has over 125 years of combined experience to get you the best deal possible while stopping the IRS dead in their tracks. Call Signature Tax now at 800-859-9446. Call 800-859-9446. Again, that's 800-859-9446. 800-859-9446. Welcome back to Animals Today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her, or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet 
is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now, the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now, this may sound painful. It really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted, so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here. In 1985, Dr. Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D, AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. Now, I want to tell you a true story. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or, or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who, quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now, we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would, on her own, arrange for anywhere from five to ten dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate, to a Northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pack up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. Now, the dog in question, upon entering the northern shelter, was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchipped made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog and reunite him with the rest of his family. So except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the the stress the dog experienced and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. 
Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but They had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe, so Chloe ended up in a shelter where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with a wonderful couple, but with their shepherd, Mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. And your friend who passed away, she didn't have a will, but also didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There was chaos. Okay, so there's the big message. You have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Francis Carlyle a legal expert about this uh, a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, Frances is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning, and she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take when preparing their will. And the first is that you need to prepare something, and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school, and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before. Which is not to say that you necessarily need a will if you are going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in, in writing. But just uh, make sure you take some steps so, so people know what you want. But Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions. And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley. Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock, luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley 
Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota. So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal. I do believe so. You look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-643-2848. A Place for Mom offers free, one-on-one advice from local advisors and a personalized list of senior living communities you can visit. If you have questions about senior care for your mom or dad, there's a place for answers, a place for mom. Call A Place for Mom in the next 10 minutes to get your free ebook on financing senior care as well as free information on senior living communities in your area. According to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, there are over 5,000 robberies every day. Your home could be at risk of being burglarized. Don't put your loved ones and valuables in jeopardy. For just over a dollar per day, your home can be protected from break-ins, fire, and more. Get the latest home security technology from Protect Your Home, your ADT-authorized dealer. Over 6 million households sleep better at night with ADT-monitored home security. 
What's more, Protect Your Home is offering you their latest equipment, an $850 value, absolutely free for qualified customers. Protect your loved ones and home today. Call now for licenses and to find out more. The call is free, 1-800-261-3620. That's 1-800-261-3620. Again, 1-800-261-3620. $99 installation charge, 36-month monitoring agreement at $36.99 per month. Payment by credit card or electronic bank account charge. For new homeowner customers with satisfactory credit history only. Local permit fees may be required. Certain restrictions apply. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tinoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tinoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tinoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800-930-1669. Welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes, please go there so you can listen to Animals Today anytime, anywhere. You know, manatees are in the news and, you know, I've never seen a manatee in person. Somehow I feel connected to them, however, and I really would look forward to the time when I can get real close to them. What do you know about manatees? Well, fortunately, to discuss what's going on with them in the news and talk about them, about manatees overall, we are pleased to welcome aquatic biologist and executive director of Save the Manatee Club, Pat Rose. Hey, Pat. Hi, good to be here. Pat, let's start this way. What is a manatee? Well, a manatee is a large marine mammal, and they're, they're a little bit hard to describe, but they're upwards to... 3,500 pounds at their largest, and certainly as a mammal, breathe air and have live young. They are a semi-tropical species, though, and so they also need to stay warm in the wintertime. Unlike cetaceans and other marine mammals, they actually do need warm water in the wintertime, and that's why they're sort of concentrated in Florida Mm -hmm. and um, have to stay warm there and can be a serious problem for them. But they reach lengths up to about 10 feet long, and they're vegetarian. Yeah. Who are they related to? Well, they're in their own order, Sirenia, and so there's two other species of manatees and then the dugong, and that's all that are left in the, the order there was a fourth, and that was a stellar sea cow, but it was extirpated in about 25 years after its discovery. Every last one was killed. What's the range of manatees? Where are they found worldwide? Worldwide, you would have the West, what's called the West Indian manatee, of which the Florida manatee is a subspecies, and they would be throughout the Caribbean on the coastal, the uh, east coast southeast coast of Florida. They would go through the Gulf of Mexico, those coastal waters south 
northward to about Recife, which is in, in northern South America. Hmm. And then you have the West African manatee, which, as it's described, is off the west coast of Africa. And then the third species is the Amazonian manatee. And then that's in the Amazon Orinoco regions of uh, South America. Pat, how can people get up close to manatees without disturbing them? We like to suggest that people come, especially in the wintertime when manatees are coming to our natural springs to stay warm, like at Blue Springs State Park or Homosassa Springs State Park, other places where there are actually boardwalks all along the, the parkways and people can, can see them really well without disturbing them from the water. Places like Homosassa, they could come and see them and walk underwater in a viewing platform without, again, without disturbing them. There are a few, quite, I guess, a number of manatees in facilities now that work with us in partnership on rehabilitation. And while those animals are still being taken care of, they could go to a few of the zoos that have them. No manatees are kept in captivity just to keep them and to display them. Any manatee that is in a facility is really there as part of its care and with the ultimate goal to get them returned to the wild. Well, I'm really, like I said, I'm really enchanted with them, even though I've never seen one. I need to get down. What month should I come down to Florida to check them out? If you want to see them in their natural habitat, this in the winter is the best time. So uh, late December, January, and most of February would be sort of the ideal times. But we can kind of probably hook you up someplace in Florida, no matter what time you might okay. come. Okay. Well, I'll give you a call. What's the conservation status of manatees? What are their threats? The manatees' primary threat, threats, and maybe I should go back, originally they were hunted to near extinction, uh, and fortunately that hunting was pretty much eliminated for the most part, at least in the United States, by the time of sort of the end of, well, really about the end of World War II. Hmm. And from that time forward, they'd been in, the habitat was still in good shape and they had been doing better. Now those threats and risks have been replaced, number one, by boating accidents where they're hit and injured and killed by boat collisions. Uh, in addition to that, cold weather is quite a serious concern. We had more than 300 manatees die in 2010 just from severe cold. Mm. Uh, in addition to that, we now are having exacerbated problems with red tide. And uh, for the example, we had another really bad year in 2013 where more than 300 animals died from red tide exposure. There's a brevitoxin produced by those dinoflagellates that can be very toxic to, of course, manatees and many other species as well. Uh, in addition to that, threats to their habitat uh, in terms of the springs, whether they're going to continue to flow and be there for the winter for them. And just, you know, a number of other usual things that happen. Disease does occur, but it's not been a large determinant in terms of killing a lot of manatees, although we've had in the last year or so some unusual mortality events in our East Coast that we don't yet really know why they're dying. So what's happening regarding their conservation status? That's the item in the news we need to talk about. Yes. I've been working for more than 40 years with manatees with the goal to see them go from endangered status under the Endangered Species Act to hopefully reclassification to threatened, and then ultimately we'd love to see them uh, delisted altogether. Unfortunately, that process is kind of moving ahead of where their biological safety is, if you will. There's a proposal that was just put out by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service to reclassify manatees from endangered to threatened. We think that's premature, 
although we certainly maintain that as a goal. And some of those things that I just mentioned, such as the 766 manatees dying in 2010, another 830 dying in 2013, Mm -hmm. are, are things that have occurred since the time that the agency has included, they have not yet included those high mortality events within their modeling and projections as far as how the risk and threats to the population are. And so that's one of the reasons we think it's premature to be reclassifying them from endangered to threatened at Mm -hmm. this time. And what would that reclassification do from a practical standpoint? It's a really complicated answer. Many people would tell you it's not going to do much because there's still quite strong protections for threatened species uh, under the Endangered Species Act. And that is true on paper. The reality is that there are already organizations that don't like speed zones being put in place to protect manatees. They don't like restrictions on development of waterfront activities and so forth. They're already proposing even legislation as we speak to undermine the state protections for manatees, remove the protection zones from them, make it easier for people to pump more water from the aquifer, for example, and do a number of things. So on the face of it, the answer might be it shouldn't mean there's going to be less protections, but we know as a practical application of how things work and the politics that get involved that there will be a rollback in protections at a time when many of those risks and threats are actually increasing. What can individuals do and what are you doing with Save the Manatee Club to uh, influence this process? Well, we're, we're presently within a 90-day period when the public can make comments and express their opinions to the Fish and Wildlife Service, including giving them very specific scientific information as well as what you know someone's opinion might be. So we're going to be doing again, as we've done before, uh, developing a quite extensive, elaborate response as to why we don't believe that it's time yet to celebrate their reclassification. I would want your listeners to know that the population had been improving from the time that they were first listed back with the original Endangered Species Act, but we've now hit some pretty big stumbles. And so what we thought maybe in 2009 might be a time to begin to look at a celebration, we know now that it's far from that. So if folks want to go to our website, that's a good way to help them see what we're doing and also how they can get involved, and that's savethemanatee.org. And there is a wealth of information on that website, and I also learned maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Jimmy Buffett connection. Yes. Back in 1981, Jimmy Buffett actually was approached by our governor at the time, Governor Graham, and uh, he took his daughters backstage at a concert and Jimmy asked the governor, you know, what, hey, I'm concerned about manatees. What more can we do? Uh, They got together, and from that, there was the governor appointed a Save the Manatee Committee. I happened to already be working with manatees at the time, so they also approached me to help as the first scientific advisor. And so for for many, many years, I served as a volunteer for Save the Manatee Club, and ultimately when I retired from the state of Florida where I ran the state's marine protected species programs, I did come on board with Save the Manatee Club as uh, the executive director. Now, about a year ago, I saw a news report about a woman trying to swim or ride on a manatee. That's obviously a no-no. Yeah, she was actually trying to ride it, and it was in the fairly shallow water 
that it's unusual that someone even would be in a position to be able to try to do that. This was a female manatee that was in an estrus condition, and she had actually gone to very shallow water to try to elude some of the male suitors at the time, mm-hmm. which can often sometimes happen up to two weeks. And but so at that point in time, while she was trying to get away from the other males because she wasn't quite receptive yet. The woman got on, held on, even though people told her, please don't do that. She kind of continued to do it. And so she did get some community service out of that one. Yeah. And how about the scuba and the snorkelers? Are they, uh, are they bothering the manatees? For a very long time, there, was, there had been activities in Kings Bay and Crystal River area where people could swim and if they were very careful and not to harass the manatees and chase them away and so forth. And in fact, we had established a number of sanctuaries for the manatees to be there. And then you could have with responsible swimming uh, in the area, you could observe manatees up close as long as they had plenty of places to go if they didn't want to be around the divers. Unfortunately, that has boomed into 100,000-plus people coming. Oh, my goodness. And the agencies responsible have not kept up with the sanctuary areas. So it's become quite controversial of late, and we're trying to not to stop the ability to swim with them in certain circumstances, but making sure there's a sanctuary for every manatee that wants to be in it and then those that might want to choose to be out where the swimmers are then that's one way to do it but we we really encourage people to come and see them and observe them in their natural habitat and not disturb them pat rose executive director of save the manatee club thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us here on animals today and we'll look forward to seeing how this progresses thank you peter This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Danny here. I want to talk to you a little bit about our power grid. Now, it's no secret that the administration has literally declared war on the coal industry. And the result is that the cost of electricity is skyrocketing right past the record rates we already have. Now, ultimately, I believe these policies are going to create real shortages of electricity. It's like Obamacare, but with the power grid. And it gets worse. Experts say that our power grid continues to remain unprotected and vulnerable, which is why I want all of my listeners to be able to produce their own supply of electricity. Listen, I believe that it's time to prepare. You should always prepare and be prepared, especially with any coming problems concerning the power grid. So do what I did. Get a solar generator from Solutions from Science. They run quietly, emit no fumes, and produce an endless supply of electricity from the sun. Go to DanaSolarBackup.com to learn more. That's DanaSolarBackup.com. Use coupon code Dana to get a special half-price offer. DanaSolarBackup.com. This report is brought to you by Shriners Hospitals for Children. 
The U.S. Fire Administration reports more home fires during the holiday months than any other time of the year. Home fires and deaths increase significantly with more cooking, decorations, and open flames. And the biggest fire risk of all could be your Christmas tree. Shriners Hospitals for Children and actor Joe Minoso of NBC's Chicago Fire offer simple steps to keep families safe from fires and burn injuries with the Be Burn Aware PSA series. Joe Minoso. During the holidays, hundreds of kids are taken to the ER with severe burns. That's why I'm working with Shriners Hospitals for Children to remind you to be burn aware this holiday season. Simple steps like watering your tree daily and discarding the tree once it becomes dry can significantly reduce the risk of house fires and burn injuries. Additional tips include making sure your tree is at least three feet from heat sources and never leaving lit candles unattended. Learn more at BeBurnAware.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. In basketball, a player who commits too many fouls is ejected from the game. In our court system, a person who files too many frivolous lawsuits can be ejected from the courts, too. There's a legal term for a person who files too many frivolous lawsuits. They're called a vexatious litigant. Courts don't do this often, but a woman in Idaho filed so many frivolous lawsuits she was officially named a vexatious litigant by three states, two federal circuit courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court. The courts told the repeat lawsuit offender that she couldn't file any more lawsuits without special permission from a judge. So what did she do next? She actually sued the last judge who told her she couldn't file any more lawsuits. Let's be fair. Taking away anyone's right to sue should be done only as a last resort. Yet because frivolous lawsuits tie up courts and delay justice for others, judges shouldn't hesitate to penalize people when they continuously abuse the courts. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. back to the program. Our friends at the Animal Legal Defense Fund just released their 2015 annual report where they rank the strengths and weaknesses of animal welfare laws among the 50 states. To tell us about this, I want to welcome Laura Dunn, who is staff attorney for the Animal Legal Defense Fund's Criminal Justice Program, where she assists prosecutors and law enforcement throughout the country on animal cruelty cases. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, what is this report, and when did you start publishing it? So ALDF's report is the longest-running and most comprehensive report of its kind, uh, and this is the uh, 10th year for the report. So, Laura, what are the best states for animal protection laws? So the best five states remain the same this year uh, for many years in a row. This is the eighth consecutive year. Illinois is holding strong at the top, uh, followed by Oregon, Maine, California, and Michigan. And we're, we're going to talk about that, but first tell us, which are the worst states? So the states that unfortunately are at the bottom of our rankings report for animal protection are North Dakota, Utah, Wyoming, Iowa, and Kentucky is 50th for the ninth consecutive year. Wow. Wow. Now, Laura, how do you go about ranking the states? So we rank all 50 states according to 15 distinct categories of animal protection laws. And those categories range from anything from penalties for abuse and neglect to prohibitions on future ownership 
for convicted offenders, and also um, laws that include animals in protective orders for domestic violence. You mentioned the best five states are Illinois, Oregon, Maine, California, and Michigan. And I have to tell you, I was a little surprised to see Illinois at the top of the list. But what do these states share that puts them at the top of the heap here? So the best five states for animal protection laws, they all have felony penalties available for abuse, for neglect, animal fighting. They also allow animals to be forfeited or taken from the abuser's custody after an animal cruelty conviction. All of these best five states also restrict future possession of animals after conviction. And uh, they also have comprehensive measures that allow cost recovery for uh, caregiving entities. Why is Illinois ranked better than California? Even though they're in the top five best states, Illinois still won and California's four. Why is Illinois ranked better than California in this ranking report? So there are a couple of ways that Illinois' laws uh, rank a a little bit better than California. In Illinois, there are increased penalties available for a repeat abuser. That is not available under statute in California. There are also increased penalties when the abuse is committed in the presence of a minor in Illinois, uh, and California does not have such a law. How about the states on the bottom of the list? Why are their animal protection laws so deficient? So the worst five states uh, rank last for a number of reasons. None of these states make animal neglect a felony, even though in these cases, the prolonged suffering of these animal victims, they're deprived of basic care like food and water, and these can be some of the worst cases that prosecutors take on. Uh, Many of these uh, worst five states could also improve their laws by making it mandatory that an offender forfeit an animal after conviction. Uh, They could also increase penalties when the animal abuse is committed in front of a minor child. And actually requiring that veterinarians report animal cruelty is a really important component to addressing uh, animal cruelty situations. And Kentucky stands alone in that Kentucky is the only state that by law forbids veterinarians from this kind of reporting. Laura, why do you think Kentucky does not require veterinarians to report animal abuse cases? So Kentucky has raised uh, some concerns about potential uh, liability for veterinarians who report animal cruelty. However, most states that make it mandatory for veterinarians to report cruelty also include a provision that explicitly states veterinarians are immune from any civil or criminal liability. And that is a great way that a state like Kentucky uh, can amend its laws uh, for veterinary reporting. Laura, it's amazing that any state would allow a convicted animal abuser to get another animal. Please expand upon that. Yes, in all of the worst five states for animal protection laws, none of those states require that after a conviction, Uh, an animal abuser is forbidden from owning animals in the future. So that is one way that all of those states could improve their laws. What is it about these worst states that allows them to have such terrible animal protection laws? Well, one of the positive things that we hope will come out of this report is that all states, not only the worst five, Uh, that this report will inspire folks in those states to take action. We've seen a lot of good come out of 
the public looking at ways in which their laws could improve, contacting their representatives, and pushing for change. Did you see any trends in animal protection legislation compared to last year or even over a longer time frame? One of the major trends that we're really excited uh, to see is continuing is that more and more states are allowing animals to be included in protective orders in domestic violence cases. And this is so important because victims of domestic violence, the human victims, will often not leave their abusers because they're afraid of what will happen to their animals. Yeah. So these protective order laws, which 29 states now have on the books, help to break that cycle of domestic violence and keep both people and animals safer. Which state was most improved compared to last year? We were very impressed that New Jersey, which was pretty low in rank in past years, jumped into the top tier this year and was the most improved state in 2015. And this is in part because New Jersey passed some new legislation on dogfighting. Dogfighting is a highly organized and really dangerous activity, and New Jersey made dogfighting a RICO offense, also called a racketeering offense, which really helps prosecutors and law enforcement shut down these dogfighting rings. New Jersey also makes it not only organizing or participating in a dogfight illegal, but also being a spectator at that dogfight, which is so significant because these organized fights wouldn't and couldn't occur without spectators. Mm. Laura, how do people use this report to promote or advance animal welfare? Well, we've been really honored that both behind the scenes and in public testimony, uh, both members of the public uh, and representatives at the state legislator level are uh, noting this report, uh, noting where their state ranks, and really using that as kind of inspiration to improve their animal protection laws. We would just really encourage everyone, no matter what state you're in, no matter what your state's rank, to get involved and help improve the animal protection laws in your state for the betterment of the animals. Very good. Laura Dunn, staff attorney for the Animal Legal Defense Fund's Criminal Justice Program. Thank you so much for sharing this information with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.